Welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Ash Kazartin. On today's show, we're going to talk about harm reduction and the World Health Organization. Joining me, I have Chelsea Boyd, Research Associate in the Harm Reduction Team at Austrian Institute, and Carrie Wade, Director of Harm Reduction Policy at Austrian Institute. Ladies, thank you for coming. Thanks. Thanks nice for having us. So there's a lot to unpack. And uh, for our listeners who don't know anything about harm reduction, I'm going to link to our previous episode with Carrie. Um, Chelsea, welcome to the show for the first time. We're going to have you back many, many times, I hope. Um, but just like a slight refresher, what is harm reduction policy? What do we say when we use this words? Because it sounds pretty good, right? <laughs> it sure does, um, especially to me. So harm reduction is the idea that there are safer ways to do things that we know are pretty dangerous for us. Um, it really started out with opioids and HIV transmission, um, you know, for risky sex. But instead of asking people to stop doing these things, um, we just maybe can provide ways to enable safer use of um, drugs or safer ways to have sex. So, you know, condoms are a great example. Uh, needle exchange programs for people who inject drugs are great, is a great example. And all of these um, methods historically have really worked, you know, to reduce infectious disease transmission, reduce overdose. Um, for that, you'd use like naloxone, which is can reverse an opioid overdose. And then when we're talking about smoking, we're really talking about safer ways to use nicotine and to take combustion out of a product. So combustion is the most dangerous thing that a human can probably be exposed to on a long-term basis. So if you can remove that, then you're really helping them use uh, nicotine in a safer way. And I'm not a scientist in any possible way. Uh, I have like multiple law degrees that are useless, basically. Um, what is combustion? That's when those bad chemicals are burning, correct? Correct. So when you light a cigarette, you're combusting that cigarette, and it is the lighting of the cigarette that causes the release of so many chemicals that are really dangerous to us. In addition, it um, you know exposes us to carbon monoxide, and it exposes us to particulate matter that's really dangerous. Chelsea, so they don't burn those chemicals in, in e-vapes and electronic cigarettes? No. So e-cigarettes utilize an e-liquid, uh, which one has many fewer chemicals and components to it than you would produce and also that go into manufacturing a combustible cigarette. Additionally, they heat the liquid so that it aerosolizes but doesn't burn. So by aerosolizing it, it again takes out the combustion piece of the puzzle. So that's if anyone has done any research on vaping, that's where you see the heat not burn thing pop up over and over again, I'm guessing. Well, so those are really two different products. Um, oh, okay. So an e-cigarette uses an e-liquid with a, a you know battery and something that can vaporize the e-liquid. A heat not burn is a different product and it looks more similar to a cigarette, but it heats the cigarette to a temperature that is not that is below the temperature required for combustion. Interesting. Well, you see, uh, I learned something today. Moving on to the World Health Organization that is currently supposed to be fighting coronavirus amongst many, many other awful things that are happening in the world. But they've been having very nice conventions in cushy parts of Europe um, that uh, a lot of us are not even invited to as policy experts. And um, let's just start with my little rant, because as I mentioned, I have two law degrees, a third one coming. And uh, a lot of the studies I've done are about international organizations. And there is one thing very interesting about them. These organizations cipher a lot of money out of nation states that are members. And they try to 
create these like high level rules or definitions that others should comply with. Often they don't even have enforcement mechanism and when often they don't have enforcement mechanisms and when they do, it's usually not their greatest ideas that they're enforcing. Um, it's just a lot of bureaucrats that have their own world. And I'm sorry to my friends who work in international organizations. I love you all. I'll come visit you in Europe. Um, but it, it is a, a lot of pushing paper. Uh, however, it seems like based on the news and our world that we've heard that the World Health Organization is taking a very close look on vaping. Um, what exactly are we doing and why are we doing it and why now instead of focusing on, again, coronavirus people, coronavirus? So the uh, World Health Organization is interested in e-cigarettes because they, uh, you know, it is a tobacco, is defined as a tobacco product and they have a lot of vested interest in tobacco control policies that will help make the world safer place to live and, you know, decrease preventable deaths, which is a laudable goal. But they're, when they're talking about e-cigarettes, they're not really putting it into the context that I would think is appropriate. There was this UK government body slash institute that did the one of the first most groundbreaking kind of researchers in this area, first when they were the first ones to link lung cancer to smoking back in the middle of the 20th century. And now, um, a couple of years ago, they uh, said that vaping is 97% safer than smoking. Was that the number? Am I? Well, you know, ripping? 95, 98, 99, I don't it know. It was definitely <laughs> yes. mid-90s. 95 is the generally quoted. 95, um, okay. Whatever it is, we know they're much safer than cigarettes or combustible <laughs> yeah. cigarettes. Uh, you know, we've, we can point you to plenty of different papers that and blog posts that um, defend the 95% rule, but Again, just by taking the combustion out of a cigarette, you are decreasing the potential exposure to carcinogens and um, carbon monoxide. Yep. Common That's carbon I'm monoxide. I'm going to keep that in. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, that people are exposed to through them. Right. So it's almost there's almost no possible way that they could be worse for you than a combustible cigarette i see and i ask this and i mean i was gonna ask this in my head um is well if you look at who's approach to this and the things they've put out so far about um e-cigarettes it seems all to be extremely negative and they want to heavily regulate it if not ban them i've seen the word ban many 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 times and that's just some like north korea level stuff i mean it's to ban and to ban these products is completely insane especially when there's really no feasible way to ban the danger the more dangerous product which is combustible cigarette that you know there is a lot of conflict with the world health organization and uh you know especially the uk public health bodies and public health experts over there because, uh, you know, they are at opposition for how to regulate. You know, in the UK, they promote the use of e-cigarettes as a quitting tool. Uh, you can buy them in a hospital. If you're, you, if you're staying alone in a hospital room, you can use an e-cigarette. And all of these measures are put in place to incentivize people to attempt to switch from a combustible cigarette. World Health Organization would give you a much more negative picture of what that looks like. One of the more irritating things that they've done recently is this ridiculous fact sheet that came out January 20th and they revised it January 29th. Um, the revision on January 29th was in direct response to a lot of criticism that they received from the UK 
public health experts. Well, what were the most outrageous things we've said in them? I just, I want our listeners to kind of measure this by their, whatever their level of knowledge about these issues is and their judgment. I mean, it's a lot of scare tactics. So um, in the original version, you know, they mentioned that e-cigarettes contain antifreeze, which is not inaccurate, but it's also in a totally incomplete statement. Um, antifreeze, it's like that liquid that you defrost your windows with, right? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how to drive, but I'm like just <laughs> riffing right now, right? Is that right? Yeah, it goes in cars. It's, it's something about cars. And, you know, when you're talking about the inner workings of how of automobile management and then, oh, that goes my e-cigarette, that's definitely not meant to make you feel better about the e-cigarette. Um But what they don't mention is that, you know, antifreeze is composed of a lot of things. And some of them are actually quite safe for human consumption. So, uh, you know, the ones that are used in e-cigarette, the one that is used in an e-cigarette, propylene glycol, is fairly safe for human consumption. So uh, Uh, do all e-cigarettes use that ingredient? Most. I mean, I think I do think all you can have a propylene glycol, vegetable glycol. You can have a 50-50 mix. Um, I think most generally stick with propylene glycol. And so they just kept using the word antifreeze just to get that negative reaction right out of In my opinion, yes. Um, yeah. You know, another one is these recent lung illnesses. They failed to mention that they're definitively linked to THC-containing liquids and would let you believe that they're, uh, you know, part of the right. nicotine and this is, this is very uh, much what's happening inside of the United States, too. There is a mass hysteria, and honestly, it looks like a paid campaign by, I'm not going to say what billionaire that's running for a Democratic nomination right now, but... Say it, say it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the truth is, um, you just see this in, you know, like the craziest publications, and then it spreads to mass. It, it goes from the bottom, it spreads up to like CNN and Fox News, and they talk about, um, they, because when the first, um, like the lung um, damages and like all those horrible cases start, started happening, uh, they, were, they kept linking it to uh, vaping and e-cigarettes, whereas it was every case was with THC in it. And most of them were some underground pods that were sold on the black market. And um, number one, the fact that all these outlets reported that it was just e-cigarettes and then never really retracted, even after it was debunked by even U.S. authorities. And number two, that there's so much fake science out there is the reason I have you two wonderful lady scientists here. Um, so please... Um, stop me from talking and tell me more about how this THT thing like, just completely was blown out of proportion and I mean, mixed up. I'll, I'll start with saying that is really, really disappointing that World Health Organization isn't doing much more to um, clarify what was going on. Uh, CDC, we've been pretty critical. Chelsea wrote a piece and she can talk to that um, in a minute. But it just their, their response has been really terrible. I mean, you know, you, you get this initial response of it's an e-cigarette, it's an e-cigarette. Well, we find out it's not what we think of as an e-cigarette, which is contains nicotine and not a vape pen or something that's contains THC. But there's no clarification of that leading people to, you know, 
be incorrect about and, their assumptions, yeah. which the is strongest voting bases, soccer moms, like let's not forget. Exactly. And, you know, and all this works its way into legislation at, at city, state and federal levels. And it's just extremely frustrating. Um, but Chelsea can clarify more what the CDC's timeline is has been with this. And for once, I think we can both agree that maybe the FDA did a little bit better of a job. The FDA did do a little bit better of a job. Um, So I did write a piece about this uh, back in November, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's on Filter Magazine. And one of the biggest things that they did with the CDC is that they really just didn't communicate the situation well at all. So from the very jump, like Carrie was saying, they pinned it to vaping, but vaping, you can vape technically just about anything that you can aerosolize. Um, And obviously people go straight to the e-cigarette because that's the most commonly spoken about thing, especially because they kept saying how it's mostly young people who are getting the um, lung injuries from vaping products. But I mean, the first death, I believe, was in a 65-year-old man. Um, And as the case count started to increase, like the hysteria just kept increasing. But yet, every time that they would start releasing more information, um, like I believe that it was uh, Utah or Wisconsin, when they put out their release, they said all of the cases that we um, had samples for, we found traces of THC in them. And that kind of kept spreading and they kept finding it and they kept finding it in samples they tested of leftover uh, e-liquid in vaping devices from uh, their patients. But what was really concerning is that the CDC kept stating that you should, if you were concerned about the safety of them, you should stop vaping anything. They still have not removed that from their um, guidance, which they did at least add, if you quit cigarettes with a vaping product, don't return to cigarettes. But it took them a really long time to say that, too, um, which in that case is just criminal. And we've heard people talking about um, particularly like e-cigarette vendors at various hearings talk about how they've had people come in and say that they weren't vaping anymore because they were afraid of the and they were smoking illness. cigarettes again. Yes. Which is way worse. Yes. <laughs> so we're all clear. And they had already quit. Um, yeah. So it was just backsliding. Yeah. And I think it's kind of interesting, too, because like aside from California, which is kind of a special case that I have some thoughts on, a lot of the states where uh, cannabis products are legalized, you saw smaller case counts. Not all of them, but some of them or, well, a lot of them. And that is just speaking to the fact that prohibition makes things more dangerous. So um, as far as I remember, most of the THC found in the patients who were treated uh, was off the black market. There were certain few brands even that were identified by the authorities. And like majority, overwhelming majority of evidence points to black market THC products that caused all of this harm. And... um, WHO and U.S. authorities and U.S. media, for some reason, is still pointing to like very much legal companies and their products. Right. Um, you know, in their first Q&A fact sheet that they wrote in January 20th, didn't even mention vitamin E acetate, which is the 
chemical that was shown to cause a lot of these injuries. And, um, you know, they, they clarified it a little bit in their second iteration of the fact sheet, but not to the extent that you would think they should. Um, but all of this creates a lot of confusion. And then, so if, for instance, you know, in their, in their second iteration, it says, are e-cigarettes more or less dangerous than conventional tobacco cigarettes? And their answer is, it is difficult to generalize on the risk to health of ends as compared with cigarettes. Are you kidding me? Yeah, it's, that's just, honestly, that's just some really bad decision-making. That is, as Chelsea pointed, honestly, they should be criminally liable for putting people's lives in danger for not giving clear guidance or giving guidance based on their own interests and not the truth and the science. Um, That's just some malpractice at best case. Um, And on on that note, you know, I don't know much about malpractice law, but... um you know, I always compare it to if you were a physician and you knew that your a patient of yours was injecting drugs, it would it should be criminal for them to say, do not access clean needles, only quit. That is that and that's essential that's essentially what the World Health Organization is doing here. I mean, or you can take it to, you know, STI prevention and doctors saying, Well, just don't have sex. Don't use condoms, just don't have sex. I mean, yeah, we have all this history of regulation and laws that obviously points to the fact that you can really change human behavior, you can make it safer, and then that changes human behavior. And that changes the way the society looks at it, too. Harm reduction in a nutshell. Harm reduction in a nutshell. Well, I think kind of just going back to the World Health Organization um, is that a lot of things that end up happening with e-cigarettes is that they're abiding by the precautionary principle, which is basically do no harm, um, in the absence of, um, of a known, of known fact, uh, err on the side of caution, um, which has historically been how we run health policy. Um, but when it comes to things like that really require abstinence to truly reduce the harm to zero um, and with something that we know is so dangerous, which is combusted tobacco. um, It's very concerning how they're unwilling to even give credence to the possibility of something that's safer um, or even other reduced risk products such as uh, snus, which is used up in the Scandinavian countries. Um, and that's like something people chew? That's like a... It's a packet of... Um, some of them here now are just nicotine, but it's a tobacco product, but it's a packet that's orally used. You stuck it under your lip and it secretes nicotine, um, which has been very successful in... Um, Sweden at decreasing smoking rates to really the lowest in Europe, um, and I believe lower than the United States as well. Oh, much lower. It's yeah. at five percent. It's lower mm-hmm. for the first time in 2017 among men. It's lower than five percent smoking rates in Sweden. Wow! And this is directly attributable to the availability of snus and the use of snus. Um, and it's worth of note. It's worthy to note that. Five percent under five percent is uh, by many public health bodies considered to be a non-smoking population. So basically, they're just yeah pushed it down all the way down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, it's also an illegal product in the rest of Europe. Yeah, 
Go that figure. Is wild. <laughs> Just wild. Um, all right. Well, ladies, thank you so much for joining me. Before I let you go, um, Carrie already did this, but we'll still let her um, share any new updates on her work. But Chelsea, this is your first time on the show, and we do our women's segment. Um, let our listeners know, how did you end up working at R Street? How did you get into harm reduction? Like, What was your path to this place? To this chair in front of me. <laughs> to this chair in front of you. Well, I took an Uber. Um, so I took a very circuitous path to the way or to where I am. Um, my undergraduate degree is in interdisciplinary liberal arts, and I have minors in math and economics. Um, didn't really know what I wanted to do after that, so I took some time off, worked a whole bunch of administrative assistant jobs um, and some marketing, and but always knew I was going back to graduate school. Um, casually attended a statistics master's program and left when they couldn't afford funding for any of their graduate students anymore. Um, and then still didn't really know what I wanted to do, took some more time off, uh, and then knew I was going to come back and do epidemiology because one of the things that I didn't like about the statistics program was that it was more theory-based and less application. And I always wanted to apply it to health problems, but they were really more into um, like educational measurement in that program. Um, so I took a year off to apply for grad school and I went and followed one of my lifelong passions, which is riding horses. So I did a year off where I just worked on a farm and centered my chi for lack of a better term, uh, or I call it my equivalent to backpacking through Europe to find myself. Um, and then started at GW, uh, George Washington University, and did my master's in epidemiology. Um, and then while I was in school, I started working with Carrie at R Street because I wanted some experience in policy. And I had worked in harm reduction um, for HIV and um, at some nonprofits that do needle exchange programs. Uh, so I was familiar with the topic, didn't have any background in tobacco, didn't really have any interest in tobacco. I know. I don't even vape. I don't <laughs> vape. I've never smoked a cigarette in my life. Like people are always like, how are you like working and vaping? I'm like, well, because I actually believe that I believe in the harm reduction part. I was going to get a vape for my grandfather who smoked like a pack a day. Like, you know, it's like all these things. Um, so yes, uh, you don't, you kind of always end up in those, in these things kind of randomly. I yeah. know if you would have told me five years ago that I was going to be working at a right of center think tank on tobacco issues and and promoting the use of any nicotine product, I would have, I would have been shocked. But here I am. I would have laughed in their face. Yes, because um, <laughs> I also had no intention of going into policy work. Um, my intention when I started was to go work for the CDC, which of course now I'm completely disqualified from ever working at the CDC yeah, after the things I've said for them, <laughs> said about them. But it's They're okay. Not have you, no. The feeling is mutual. <laughs> um, so, uh, but yeah, that's how I got here. Um, and so, as so, how long have you been at Archery now? Uh, it, a year and a half. A year and a half. Yeah. Um, this is a pointed question, but. What do you think of the world of policy? How do you see the injustices and justices of a world of policy, and how do you like it so far? Um, shockingly, I like policy. I, again, like I said, had no intention of doing that um, with my degree or before my degree. But I think one of the things that I find the most frustrating is that it's still one of those industries, much like the academic world, where it's run 
well, where you're perceived and accepted differently if you're a woman in the industry than if you're a male. Um, to some degree, it's this constant questioning of, well, you feel like you really have to over-justify yourself. And if you make one mistake, you're um, letting all the women, all the women in the world down. Well, that, but also people will just bring it back and be like, remember that one time that she wasn't exactly correct about that little thing. Whereas she had a typo. Oh my God. Exactly. She must've been on her period. Um, and this is the kind of thing that's been hard for me to overcome a little bit in that I always feel like I have to over-justify more so than what the men in the industry do. Um, oh, yeah. And if I anything, mean, they like need to, they under justify the fact that they're even, they're like people completely unqualified that feel like they're like, oh yeah, I'm running the show. I'm like, you don't even know what the show is, the name of the show. Like, you don't, what are you talking about? Exactly. Um, and you know, it's, it's also just interesting. Um, I totally respect that a lot of people have many, many more years in the industry and, many more years of education than what I have. Um, but it's very strange sitting in a room as a 20-something young minority woman um, in a very not diverse room from gender or race or Any age. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I remember being at one event where I made a comment about how, like, I don't even understand what the kids are doing nowadays. And the whole room was like, yeah, like, you're so far away from it. And I'm like, yes, I realize I'm the only person who's anywhere, like, close to high school age. I know. But, like, I feel like also millennials, We, I'm going to assume you're a millennial. Yes. Uh, whereas millennials are now not. Like I keep making comments about Gen Z as if yeah. I'm as if I'm a boomer, uh, <laughs> because I'm just like, oh my god, these kids and like their interests and their TikToks. Are you kidding me? It's basically Vine. Remember Vine was on Twitter and everywhere. Like it was short videos, same idea, identical idea, but run by the Chinese government. Oh, great! Oh, yeah, that don't, sounds don't useful. Don't TikTok kids. <laughs> <laughs> they are testing right now. This is like my surveillance reform plugin. The Chinese government right now is testing like a full facial recognition and matching uh, based on that. And like um, they're going to scan whatever video, you, let's say you post and then like they're supposed to tell you what your interests are. I'm like, I don't want to know. I know my interests. Mm-hmm. Not 12. Um, but yes, real scary. Don't go on TikTok, kids. Carrie, what about you? Uh, you and I have been like nodding a lot as Chelsea was speaking. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm very proud to say that I have uh, the only all-female all policy staff in uh, at our street. But, you know, I will acknowledge that that policy staff is two, me and Chelsea. <laughs> but, it's a uh, dr- dr- dynamic duo. Yeah, mm-hmm. we should, certainly are. Um, no, I think that it's important to remember that, you know, women need to be able to be at the table to make policies that affect this country. Uh, you know, I, I see there's, I, I don't think, I don't think they're bad people, but I see far too many men at the table and yeah, I'd like to see this more is women. Us, I think a lot of people just keep saying like, oh, every time you bring up this issue, you're like throwing stones at men. No, we're just reminding the fact that we exist and the fact that Every woman who's worked in this issue, even those who deny that, like, there are some that are like, oh, this has never happened to me. Maybe you're just like bad. I'm like, no, it happened to you. You just, like, blocked it out of your memory. Um, or there are people who play this game and say, oh, this doesn't exist just so they will be the only woman in the room. Because for some reason, um, I feel like women actually often are bigger 
um, enemies of other women <laughs> than the men. Right. Uh, because, you know, it's like, oh, there can only be one woman at this organization that does this one thing. Or, you know, it's there's like, like a quota in our head. And that's part of the toxic society, societal structures that we've been raised in. Um, but, Carrie, yeah, you you especially, like, um, you came from the academ- academic world. And, um, and I kind of did, too. And to me, the academic world and the policy world are pretty similar. Although I'll tell you, the policy world feels way more diverse to me than the academic one. Um, Would you agree? It's, it's, I, w- I would agree that they're pretty similar. Um, I feel like I had more, uh, you know, more, more female influence in academia than I do in policy here. But that also might be a function of it being a right of center organization, which... Yeah, I mean, also there are different different niches, but which I've noticed, um, in different different sciences and humanities that are more run by women than the others, um, like obviously like like feminism study, like women's studies, feminism, all those kind of things. Or um, in the like policy area, I actually noticed we had an event on COPPA, which is children's privacy law. And our whole panel, aside from people um, from our organization, were women. Uh, and I was just like, oh, wait a minute, because children's privacy is considered like a, a female, women, like right. a family, anything family related. It's like a female issue. It's very true. And I think... Um, Public health is a great example of that. Uh, I remember one of my first semester classes was social and behavioral um, components to public health or something like that. Um, And there were, I think, seven men in the class. There were probably close to 100 of us in the room. Um, And the professor on the day we were discussing gender had um, a conversation where everyone was open to raise their hand and say, you know, what ways do you, what things do you think about and habits that you have to try and prevent yourself from being assaulted? And we probably spent 45 minutes of all of the women in the room saying these crazy things that we did. Keys in your hand. Keys in your hand, but things that I had even never heard. Um, And some of them I was like, oh, that's smart. And then I like smacked myself for it. Um, And have you guys heard of a door buddy? It's like this thing you put under your door. So like no one like tries to like break in because it would hold someone off up to 800 pounds. Just like stick it under your door. Yeah, I looked into that. This is creepy and a little dark, but do you remember the rape jeans? They were jeans with like a specialized zipper and buttons so that they couldn't be taken off unless you knew what you were doing. Oh, wow. I think I, they that have was, those as underwear now. Yeah. I mean, it's just like that's totally it's it's super off topic. We completely no, I'm going to like tweet the links out to this. We make no money off of DoorBody does not pay me. Although if you want to sponsor an episode, hit me up. <laughs> Specialized yeah. specialized clothing products don't pay me on my bills either. So, <laughs> so what was the end of the story? Oh well, I'm trying trying to think of how um, I don't want that to be harm reduction at all um, because that's a terrible um, terrible way to think of harm reduction because it's not your responsibility to prevent assault. Um, but aside from that, um, she then asked the seven men in the room um, if they did any of these things and they were like no I had no idea all of you did that (laughs) and um, it was a really I think for them it really was an eye-opening experience but um, you know there's 
it's it's interesting. And a lot of the most of the men were biostatisticians, which was like the most male dominated program. Um, I was in the epidemiology program and there were a lot of women there. It was a little closer to mix. And then there's, uh, you know, global health and environmental policy were kind of the places where the guys were. But, you know, family studies or social determinants of health, those were all very, very female. And again, it, you know, affects women, Mm -hmm. which makes sense. But, you know, I like math. (laughs) I don't, for the record. Let me be very clear. I would be a terrible driver and I can't, like, calculate tax or tip or anything. So I'm going to embrace the stereotype, but also you see we have Chelsea and we have Carrie and they're both scientists and I am not. And so don't keep peddling stereotypes, people. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, um, tell our listeners where they can find you and your hilarious takes on Twitter and on other websites. Boy, I don't even know my own Twitter handle. I'm pretty sure it's Carrie L. Wade. I think it is Carrie L. Wade. And uh, you can find my anything we've written on our street at rstreet.org under the harm reduction page. Yep. And I am at before Chelsea um, because life was better before Chelsea. (laughs) No, it was better. It's better after Chelsea. What the hell? Ah, I didn't think this was. Uh, no, everything changed. Was different before Chelsea. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, life just was cut worse all of before Chelsea. Say it again for the for the listeners. For the record. Okay. Great. It's uh, at my Twitter handle is at before Chelsea. And the harm reduction page on our street. We're going to link to that. Thank you so much for coming. Our listeners, please leave us a review and tell me what you think about this episode. Thank you for listening. Thank you. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.